Peace be with you. As, he's, as uh, Pastor Eric said, we are finishing it up. And so um, we just got a short passage. So uh, if you've got your Bible, open up Ecclesiastes 12, very end. Um, turn your Bible on, sort of a thing. We're going to flip around a little bit in the book. Um, but go there. We're going to just pick up right at verse 9 in chapter 12 and read all the way to the end there. So if you're able, if you're willing and able, stand for the reading. If not, if you... You're just wore out. Knees are hurting. It's okay. You ready? You made it through. If you've been, if you've been, tra- if you've been tracking, if you've been coming along, you've made it through the whole book. It's actually a short read, but it's been a long summer going through. Anybody done with philosophy yet? Am I willing to be honest about? I'm just done with philosophy. No. Okay. Nobody wants to be that disrespectful towards the word, right? Here we go. You ready? Here's what he says. Besides being wise, the the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. So as we come to the end here, talked about a lot, but there's also been a lot of overlap, a lot of repetition, you could even say, in this book. As we come to the end, remember, of, of course, what we've been learning or what we've been studying, really, just say it in a word, wisdom, right? I mean, this is Ecclesiastes is one of the wisdom books. Um, it's a book about the complexities and the gray of life. It's a lot like not telling you about facts and figures as much as it's like telling you how to apply what you know to life as it comes to you. I think it was J.I. Packer in Knowing God that talks about it like learning how to drive. When you're learning how to drive, it's not like you're thinking, I wonder why this road narrows here or, or why it should turn like this. Instead, you are just trying to respond to the information as it comes to you. That's what it's like to learn biblical wisdom. And so, um, so here's his summary of wisdom. What's his summary of wisdom? He kind of just sums it all up, really. Fear of the Lord. That's what it is. Fear of the Lord displayed, I, I could say, uh, we should say displayed through loyalty to God. That's the ultimate image of wisdom. That's what he has to tell us. After everything he knows and he's experienced, he's saying, look, you want to know what wisdom is? It's fear of the Lord and loyalty to God or obedience, keeping his commandments another way is how he says it. So wisdom isn't knowing facts. It's not so much Wisdom isn't so much having like an academic aptitude. Um, it certainly isn't just studying and reading, although that's good. I mean, he even says, look, studying's good, but man, you can wear yourself out. Oh, how true that is. It's like the more books you read, the more you know, the more you realize how much you don't know. Um, and so it's not so much an ac- academic aptitude. Um, it's, um, and it's certainly not uh, described as worldly success or achievement. The Bible has no <laughs> time for that kind of foolery. I mean, it's not against worldly success or achievement, but that doesn't make you wise. Um, What's fascinating, really, when you actually stop and think about it, wisdom, according to the Bible, is described relationally. 
It's a posture of your life. The image of wisdom is a kind of posture toward God and the world around you. And, and this, this kind of encouragement really isn't new or unique. It's repeated throughout the Bible. If, you're, if you grew up around the church or you've just been kind of reading and studying the Bible for some time in your life, you're, you're probably familiar with that. This is not a new phrase for you. Maybe this was the only verse you knew in the whole book of Ecclesiastes. You might be willing to be like, yep, that was it. That was the only verse I knew. Amen, sister. So um, the most famous one probably that you're familiar with, Proverbs 1.7, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's the one most people go to saying almost the same thing. Proverbs 15, 33, the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Job 28, you know, the, the fascinating story of Job, uh, verse 28 says, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. So, uh, uh, and, and you get into the New Testament, and there's variations of this. This is, this is throughout the whole Bible. This is the Bible's view. If you want to know what the Bible's view of wisdom is, it's this, fear of the Lord. Okay, so what is the fear of the Lord before? Just what is it, right? Um, you, I'm sure you've heard it, or you, maybe you've sat through sermons on it. Let's be clear about what it's not, right? Just for the sake of if there's a new Christian in here, there's somebody wrestling with what is Christianity, what is, what is it not? Okay, it's not having a sense of terror or dread of God. It is not. It is having a sense of reverence, a sense of awe, amazement, a careful attention and respect to God. That's what I would say. It's, a, it's much like the ocean. Like you don't need to be terrified in the presence of the ocean. You don't need to be terrified to even swim in the ocean, but you better respect it, right? Like you, you get caught in a riptide and uh, it's dangerous, it's powerful. I read recently, if you get caught in a riptide, ironically, the thing you don't do is fight against it. Please, I hope I'm not, I'm not a life, an ocean lifeguard, so no one. But what I've read is that actually you should surrender to it, letting it drag you out, which I know sounds horrible, but those who fight against it can exhaust themselves, and that's where you get into trouble. So it's much, fear of the Lord is much like that. It's this careful attention that I, look, um, there is a sense in which I am in the presence of something that is far more powerful than me. I need, to give it, I need to give it respect and honor, paying very careful attention to, to, to my own posture towards it and how I think of it, my own assumptions, these sorts of things. Fear of the Lord is living with this attentive, reliant, and hopeful posture that God is God. You are not. Like, in some ways, like, if you could sum it, boil it all the way down from the Bible's perspective, the fool is a person who just lives their life thinking that somehow they are God. And the wise person is the person that is always living with this constant, um, maybe even nagging idea that they are not God and they have to answer to God. God is God, we are not. God rules and orders the world, we do not. God is the ultimate creator and judge of the earth and everyone in it, we are not. To feel small is fear of the Lord. And this doesn't just humble us, this idea that God is God, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't explain everything, he's almost fully beyond our comprehension, all this. This doesn't just humble us, it also should fuel us with hope sitting where we're sitting, right? I mean, 
Because the rest of the Bible, beyond Ecclesiastes, you have to go beyond Ecclesiastes to, to get this, but the rest of the Bible beyond this book makes it clear that although God is beyond our full comprehension, God's desires and his intentions towards you are not beyond comprehension. Actually, they become quite clear throughout the rest of the Bible. He has come for us. God has come for us. He's made it clear that his judgment that we face does not need to be something that we dread. Like if you come in this morning or you have been in a place in your life where you've been thinking about judgment and you've been thinking about the fact that you do have to give an account for your soul, the Bible wants to make it clear that, yes, that is true, but this is not something that you have to be terrified of. Because the rest of the Bible wants to show us what God's desires are. He's come to rescue and save us. Jesus is that revelation to us. Jesus doesn't just show us the character of God, that he, he desires mercy, but Jesus crucified is the revelation that God wants to save. He wants to rescue. He wants to reconcile you to him. This is his desires, his intentions for all of us to bless the families of the earth. And if we repent and believe in this truth, which is what it means to be a Christian, just for the sake of like, let's get it out there. It's good to be reminded of it. If we believe and repent to this, of this truth and, 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 and turn to this, that is what it is to be Christian. We don't become more casual with God. Like, that's silly. We don't become more casual. We become more reverent and attentive. We become more curious about what is God asking of me? What is God asking of you? Are you being attentive to that? Not with dread, but with this kind of loving attention. He has saved me. He's given me a second chance. He's given me a whole new life. He's creating me to be this whole new person. What does that even mean? Am I asking questions about that? And everything that my life is doing and the areas, my relationships, it should touch down into all of it. And we do this with peace. That's proper, a proper understanding of fear of the Lord. And briefly, cool. How's it going for you? <laughs> You know, like, I mean, I, what I was thinking about all week is this. All right, I want to talk, uh, as we close the book, I want to talk to you guys. I want to have, have a conversation, although we don't really seem to have conversations when I'm preaching, but I would like to have a conversation about fear of the Lord. Like, is it in you? You know, because really, when you think about it from the Bible's perspective, if we call ourselves Christians, it's kind of like the foundational thing, you know? In some ways, it's kind of like a almost like a catch-all answer for everything. It's like fear of the Lord, man. It, it, is this, it really sorts to kind of, it's the foundational principle that can sort out so many things in your life, or at least bring you to peace, I would say. Um, but the thing is, is if I say, hey, do you want wisdom? And you say, yes, I do. And I say, okay, go home and fear God. It's like, good luck with that, right? And if you're like, yeah, I'll go do that, then you're being naive. It's not that simple. Um, fear of the Lord is not really a decision as much as it's a way of life. It's something we have to cultivate. If we're talking um, about relationship, and that's what we are, fear of the Lord is this, these are relational terms, and it's a process. It takes time. It has cycles. It has rhythms. It has repetition, even. And I want us to just understand that process. I don't want us to be naive about the process of cultivating fear of the Lord in our lives. 
We desperately need to understand the process, the signs, the feelings that are associated with fear of the Lord. Because like I said, this is incredibly foundational. And, and the wise person, according to the Bible, is the person who sees fear of the Lord and loyalty to God. Like real, genuine, daily, ordinary, and ordinary moments, loyalty to God. That is the entire call of your life, according to the Bible. To honor, to cherish, to attentively adore and worship God is what you were made for. That's what he says at the very end. The question at the very beginning of the book, what was it? What's my purpose? What's he saying your purpose is? Verse 13, this is the whole duty of man, to fear the Lord and to keep his commandments. That's the question he's been wrestling with. That's the answer he gives. His answer, his conclusion goes something like this. In light of the mysteries laid out in front of all of us, the one thing that is certain is that we belong to God and we are going to return to God. To fear God is to be wise. So how do we cultivate fear of the Lord? Well, what's interesting is the first step isn't so much an act of the will. It's not so much an act of discipline even as I would say, it is much more a learning to be attentive. Fear of the Lord is learning to be attentive. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you've been reading the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, it's been tempting, um, at least the active listener, the active reader, into this incredible pessimism and incredible cynicism. Have you felt it? Like week after week, it's almost like this constant drudgery of like bad news. How many times has the preacher addressed a particular endeavor of life, like work, family, sex, money, you name it. I mean, he's been going through the garden variety things that we throw ourselves into. Um, and at some point, somehow he comes back to a negative remark on it, doesn't he? Over and over and over again. I mean, he's the, he's the metaphorical party pooper. He's the spiritual Eeyore. Always losing his tail, never happy, never content, like just, that's him. You feel it when you read it. He's doing it on purpose. It's not like it's accidental. He's the friend that you struggle to be around. Because they're just like, man, it's just like they're negative. They feel so negative all the time. To be fair, he, he occasionally calls us to enjoy the simple, ordinary pleasures of life, doesn't he? But somehow, but like the thing about it is, even when he does that, he always reminds us of the shadow. Like, I'll give you an example. Here's back in chapter 9, verse 7. He says, go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. You're like, amen. <laughs> For God has already approved of what you do, right? Oh, yes, awesome. I, it's like, just hang out there, man. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. In other words, clean yourself up. Look great. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life <laughs> that he has given you, you, know, you pathetic life. And just enjoy your marriage, you pathetic loser. <clears throat> Sorry. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, you know, like whatever you, whatever you really want to do, whatever you currently are doing, just do it with everything you got and enjoy what you have, right? And then he says this, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. It's like, burr, burr. 
come on, man. Why that? I mean, he's like, hey, hey, drink a good glass of wine, eat a good meal. If you're married, yeah, enjoy. If you can participate in sex, like, great. Uh, all these things, enjoy it, enjoy it, enjoy it. Just remember, you're going to die. It's, that's what he said. Been studying this book all summer. Believe me, that is what he is saying. So, is Ecclesiastes the sermon of a cynic who thinks wisdom comes through cynicism? Just it's a simple question. Is that what he's doing? Does, does wisdom, fear of the Lord, come through pessimism? No, but here's the thing. Hear me. It does come through disillusionment. And it does come through a certain amount of pain sometimes. Wisdom, fear of the Lord, is in so many ways predicated on your own disillusionment and your own pain. Let me explain. It comes through an honest look at life's unfairness, life's fleeting nature, life's perpetual mysteries. It comes through taking off, as one writer called it, your rose-colored glasses that you have on the world and your place in it and seeing it for what it actually is. Stop pretending. Ecclesiastes is inviting us, inviting God-believing people to stop pretending. Ecclesiastes says, let's face it. God rarely reveals himself to you and tells you exactly what he's doing. And the church people need to start admitting that that is true. We do not somehow have the golden ticket on all the answers of life. Now, you know, I know there are some parts of the Bible, there are parts of the Bible that tell us things that we should and hold to, like with a certain sense of certainty, like our salvation. But beyond that, what is God telling you? You know how this vaccine, th do you know how, mu how, how much this vi fight is going to unravel? Do you know how the fall and the pandemic is going to work out? Do you know how the economy is going to work out? Has God brought you into his secret counsel and told you everything? I'm not, I'm not belittling us. I'm saying like, the, we know that these things are true. I, as much as we might hold to the Bible, as much as we might hold to a certain kind of love and belief in the goodness of God, we are, still, we are not somehow in a position of authority to say, oh yeah, I, I know everything that is going on. No, we do not. We are still steeped in so much mystery. Truth is, rarely do we know the details of how things will work out. And oftentimes, sadly, things look really unfair even. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 11. Again, I saw under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. The world is a very topsy-turvy place, and sometimes things don't work out the way you expected them to. And it's kind of discouraging. Sometimes things happen in life, and the truth is that deep down, if we're honest, we wonder, God, where are you in this? God, why won't you reveal yourself? God, why won't you make things right? God, why are you being so silent? That is an ancient experience, and it has happened to every person who has ever attempted to live genuinely for God. Psalm 120 is a great example of this. It's one of my favorites. 
It's an ancient prayer of frustration to God. You can go read it, sit and meditate on it. It says this, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Whose lying lips is he referring to? We don't know. His own? The world around him? His families? His friends? Culture? What shall be given to you, and what, shall more be, what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? I wore your sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. These are just metaphorical terms for feeling alone, misunderstood, and completely cut off from people. Too long have I had my dwelling place among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Feel familiar? Eugene Peterson writes this on this psalm. A person has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice, or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment, or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility, we are not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. A person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he, before she, acquires an appetite for the world of grace. Psalm 120 is the song of such a person, sick with the lies and crippled with the hate, a person doubled up in pain over what is going on in the world. But it is not a mere outcry, it is pain that penetrates through despair and stimulates a new beginning, a journey to God that becomes a life of peace. This is the prayer, a song of someone who has become disillusioned with the way the world is, and they are humbly becoming attentive to God and looking for hope beyond the sun. There's a whole lot of confusion in the world right now. I don't know if you've noticed. Uh, every day we are bombarded with the warnings, with warnings about the economy, um, religion, uh, disease. Uh, death, climate, international affairs. Did I leave anything out? Right? Every day. This confusion, the conflict, add in, throw in the isolation that has happened and is probably more to come. It has led us into what feels like an incredible amount of what I would call deconstruction, right? I feel like we are the generation in the age of deconstruction. We deconstruct everything now. Both in the church and outside it. It's like we're constantly being forced to ask ourselves, where do we stand on issues? What do we believe about the world? And how should the world be arranged and operated? Right? And some of us like to argue about that. Some of us don't. We like to hide right? and just be like, I have no idea. And some of us get really insecure and we feel like, I don't even know who I am anymore. I don't even know what I believe anymore. I don't know where truth lies anymore. Or am I the only one? If you're connected to family or you're connected to community at all, where at least people are being honest, I would say you've noticed or you're beginning to notice that people are deconstructing everything. They're deconstructing their marriages. They're deconstructing their friendships. They're deconstructing uh, their careers. Like, what am I doing with my life? They're deconstructing their church. They're deconstructing their faith. 
like putting everything back on the table, starting to ask hard questions of it. Uh, in June, back in June, the Wall Street Journal reported that Americans are quitting their jobs this year in record numbers. And the overwhelming reason behind it was not pandemic-related. It was disenchantment and boredom. And it's worse in the church, far, far worse in the church. Look up any religious poll worth its salt, and you'll see the rapid decline of church attendance. Rapid decline. And you'll see the rise of what we're now even calling, there's a whole new category, which is called ex-evangelical, right? There's just this booming rise in now. There's people that have been raised in the church or have spent much of their life in the church and are living out this kind of robust faith and now have just become so disenchanted and disillusioned with it. They've removed themselves, and it's like a whole new label. I've been deconverted, and I am now set free. I want to be clear with you as a church. I always try to be very transparent with you. I want to be very clear. I do not celebrate people busting up and walking away from good, mattering things that God calls us to, like covenant marriage, lasting friendships, and loving participation in a church, and certainly loving participation in the kingdom of God and loyalty to Christ. I do not celebrate people busting that up and abandoning that. Um, but I also want to be really clear with you, and I want to invite you into considering this. I am not scared in the slightest bit of people deconstructing these things. I'm not scared in the slightest bit. As a matter of fact, like I'm just not scared of disillusionment, and, 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 and as a matter of fact, I welcome it. I gladly welcome it. I welcome it because if we allow it, if we are willing to be humble, to humble ourselves, we can see that our frustration doesn't just come from experiencing the disappointments in life. It doesn't just come from experiencing people's failures. It also comes from the heartache that we feel from our own wounded pride. We did not know as much as we thought we did. Our expectations have been shattered. Man, I think I was more of a know-it-all than I realized. And it's humiliating, and it hurts, and that's part of what I'm feeling in my disenchantment and my disillusionment. In many cases, we have not known everything we thought we did, and we were far more naive than we ever dreamed, whether that's about my gifts, my career, my marriage, my friendships, the church, and God. And the wise are those who stop and consider that that might be true of me. And they're able to start to have a conversation about that, to think about that. In the words of J.I. Packer, in case you think, well, I don't know what he's talking about. We'll go to somebody far more smarter than me. J.R. Packer from his old classic book, Knowing God, he says this. He says, talks about this disillusionment this way. He says, quote, our cheerful illusion of being in God's secret counsels is shattered. We thought we were one who knew all about the ways of God and providence, and we have been made to learn by bitter and bewildering experience that we didn't. See, notice at the end of Ecclesiastes, the author says this, um, this is 12, verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads, 
and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So goads are long sticks with one or more pointed ends on it, and they are used to poke and prod cattle to guide them in a certain way. No one likes being poked or prodded. I, I am not in the business of cattle ranching, but I assume that cattle don't enjoy it either. Yeah? But it is effective. It is effective in awakening them and stimulating them to movement and action. His point then, Ecclesiastes' point, is the disheartening but honest words of a book like Ecclesiastes and other, other words that come from the scriptures. They are painful. They are painful, but they can lead to incredible stability because they are words from God, the one shepherd. The words of God are meant to wake us up to the truth that life not only has its broken parts, but there are not simple and clear answers to it. It is God who wants us to face our disillusionment with this broken and mysterious world so that we might stand humble before him. That is what he wants of us. It is God who wants to break us out of our naivete, our foolish ideas that we can predict life. It is unhelpful for your own soul, and it is certainly unhelpful to your neighbor to be one who thinks that you know everything that's going to happen in the near future or exactly what God is up to. We don't know. We know some things, sure. God doesn't want us to face disillusionment. God doesn't want us thoroughly disappointed with life so that we fall into despair and live humiliated, miserable lives. No, 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 no. He wants to break us of our know-it-allism. He wants us more humble and attentive to him and more bearable to be around for other people. God, God wants us to be fed up enough with life's broken realities and our inability, our dr- dramatic inability to fix them so that we long for his grace and his mercy so that we long for his redemption, so that we become more curious about his where his grace and his mercy is. We get more curious about how we can cultivate it in our own lives because I don't have the answers to everything. Show me a so-called Christian who hasn't had their expectations in life shattered or reworked, and I will show you someone who is unbearable to be around. I will show you someone who does not have proper neighbor love because they have overly simplistic answers in naive optimism that is terribly frustrating for the one person who loves God and who has had incredible, unfair things happen in their life. Where does this attention lead us? I mean, in other words, is is attention and heartache the only thing we need? No, no, I want to be really clear. It's when we get attentive to our disillusionment and our disenchantment with the world, whether it's things in our families or our friends or our own faith or our church, whatever it is, when we, get, when we, when we feel this disillusionment come in um, and we realize, man, there's, I don't know what I thought I did or knew, and, and, and it moves us into prayer. And if we don't move into prayer, then gosh, maybe... Uh, cynicism and uh, depression is the only thing that we have and we'll just stay there. But there is something beyond it. 
I think that this is the very prodding of God to cultivate relationship and intimacy with us. James 1, 5 says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. This is the divine invitation as we experience the confusions and mysteries and frustrations of life, even the stuff that is incredibly uncomfortable. We lay these before God We get honest about them. God, this is not what I expected to happen. This seems really unfair. I don't know what to do with this. We humble ourselves before him and begin to ask for help. We ask for wisdom. But hear me, please, hear me. We don't go to God in prayer and ask for wisdom with not a willingness, a genuine willingness to repent of our own assumptions and our own desires. Maybe that we have maybe been hanging on to our own vision of our own little kingdom. And we need to have it wrecked so that we might open up and to see God's kingdom breaking in. This idea that God gives generously, that gives wisdom generously, it is absolutely 100% true. But it is predicated on this idea, this posture, and this heart, and this is what James gets into the, in the rest of this chapter, in someone who has this genuine desire and willingness to repent. Maybe I've had it wrong, God. Maybe I didn't know what I thought I did. Maybe I need to be reworked. I will be open, I will listen, and then I will wait. The Lord is good to the one who waits on him. Lamentations 3. This is fear of the Lord in action. This is how we cultivate it. This is how we cultivate wisdom. Attention and honesty to our broken reality, our our, our shattered expectations, our own sense of inadequacy, our longing for purpose and meaning, sharing these with and before God who gives generously. And when we do this, we take up this honesty before God and honesty and repentance, we naturally begin to take up a life of grace and we naturally begin to take up a life of obedience to God. So look, as we come to communion, I really hope, hear me, I really hope that I have not depressed you today. (laughs) Um, My hope actually has been to encourage you. And what I mean by that. is what I really want for people in this particular season of life is to be, feel permission. Feel permission to deconstruct the whatever they need to deconstruct. You don't need to be scared of it. You don't even need to dread it. You know, like it's, it's a healthy thing for us to be honest about our own faith, about our relationships, about the directions that we're going in our lives. Like if, 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 if you're at a place of peace, already, you come in here this morning and you're at a place of peace, then maybe for you, this, you just tuck this whole sermon away. Maybe it'll be for you later on a future date. You know, Seriously, that's okay. But maybe some of you need to just feel permission not to be afraid of your own humiliation. Like you don't need to be afraid of your confusion. You don't need to be afraid of your disenchantment with life and the faith. Because I want you to know it is a gift of growing in wisdom. And just receive this season as an invitation for honesty, prayer and repentance. Just receive it like that. You're not somehow less than because of these feelings. Actually, you're incredibly normal. (laughs) 
You're incredibly human, like the rest of us. And if you're willing, you could really be embarking on a whole new season of life with God. And I just want you to be humbled by that, but I also want you to be incredibly hopeful in that. So as we come to the bread and the cup this morning, I want us all to just take a moment to, to just think through it, to think through our own know-it-allism, our own possible arrogance about whatever comes into your heart, whatever comes into your mind. I don't know. I can't, I can't look out at, you know, at any point in a service and say, here's where this person needs to repent. I do not know. You do. I know where I have areas where the Spirit is working on me to repent of things that it's like, hey, you've been naive here or you've been arrogant here. But my invitation for us as a community is to learn how to have that kind of honesty, that kind of attention, that kind of prayer, because it brings wisdom. It brings wisdom. And so be reminded this morning that this bread is Christ's body, broken, broken for you. And this cup of the wine is Christ's blood shed for you. There is incredible hope. Christ is the hope of the world. But yes, we, there's still a whole lot we don't know. And so we cling to him. And so you're invited in a moment to come forward and, and participate in what we call communion of the Lord's Supper. And I want you to leave and I want you to be encouraged. But I, please, I want you to be honest with yourself, your friends, and certainly before God. Let us pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for this word. And may we as a community learn to humble ourselves before you, to cultivate this fear, to step into the ways that we might feel disenchanted with our lives, bored with our lives, frustrated with our lives. Those are all uh, points, beginnings. These are doors opening, windows opening. Those are new. That is a new opportunity, Lord. That is you poking and prodding and leading us into a really honest conversation with you and a whole process of growing, not only in humility, but in great hope that apart from you, life seems just about unbearable at times. Help us to be honest. Help us to grow in wisdom. We need it, Lord. We need so much wisdom for the coming days. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.